Well, if you have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter number one, would you shout amen? Amen. Amen. So let me welcome you into the final week of this post-Easter series where we are thinking about the fact that because Jesus has risen from the dead, everything has changed. And today we're going to be thinking about the fact that because Jesus has risen from the dead, then there is a future for this world. This world has a predetermined divine future. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever watch the news and as the headlines roll across, you shake your head and say, what's this world coming to? You ever say anything like that? Or maybe you opine, um, I-, I fear for my children. If, if the world is like this now, what will it be like in 30 or 40 or 50 years when my grandchildren are adults and living in this world? Or maybe you would say when my children are living in this world. We watch the news and we sometimes think, I, I don't know how it can go on like it is much longer. The fact of the matter is, we do live in a broken world filled with a lot of problems. In fact, scientists around the world have agreed on what they say are the five greatest threats to the human family. These five things, they tell us, threaten the very existence of human life on earth. Do you want to know what they are? They've listed them for us. The first one they tell us is nuclear war, nuclear holocaust. And that seems to have gotten a little more intense, a little more dangerous with recent world events. Another thing that they tell us that is a threat to the human family is um, climate change. Another thing they tell us is future global pandemics. Now, maybe before 2020, we would have scoffed at that and said, well, that would never happen. And yet, of course, we know that it it can. Uh, Fourthly, interestingly, they tell us that one of the great uh, potential threats to the human family is artificial intelligence, that computers might just destroy the world one of these days. And then one of the other threats they tell us, in fact, a very real threat, is overpopulation. That uh, in something less than one generation from now, in about 50 years from now, I think the statistic said that uh, the earth's population will grow from about 8 billion now to close to 12 billion uh, just within the next generation or so. And so all of these things present dangers to the human family. Now, when you think about those things and you watch the news, you typically will respond to these crises or or threats against the human family. You will fall into one of three camps in terms of how you view them. The first of those, where, where many people land, is with a humanist point of view. And if you have a humanist point of view, here's your perspective on the problems facing the world. You think... Well, it'll, we'll figure it out, right? Human ingenuity, the, the wisdom of men and the scientific efforts of mankind and the, and, the, and the joint global efforts to come together and solve these problems, we'll figure it out. We'll resolve them all without any major problems. A lot of people believe that. There's a second point of view, which is the opposite end of the spectrum, and that is the fatalist point of view. And the fatalist says... We're all doomed. There's no way there's a good outcome to any of this. The world 
is going to implode upon itself. So you got the, the humanist who says, don't worry about it, we'll figure it out. You've got the fatalist who says, no way, we're in big trouble. Well, there's a third viewpoint that people take when they view the problems facing the world. I hope this is your point of view. This is the theist point of view. And a theist, by definition, is a person who believes in God and believes that God intervenes in world events or that God intervenes in human history. In other words, the theist says, man can never figure this out, but we're not all doomed. There's a God and he has a plan. And the fact is, we're not simply theists. We are Bible-believing Christians. And we know from the Word of God that God has a plan for this planet. God has a plan for the world. He does, he has, he will intervene in the affairs and the circumstances of this world. And here's what you need to know about the Lord. He's not a shade tree mechanic. He doesn't tinker with the events of the world. He has entered into time and history and made all of the difference. And we know that he has made that entry into our world and he has made such a difference through the person and the work of his son Jesus. Now I asked you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and here's why. Because the writer of Hebrews in the first chapter gives us a rich beginning to this book, a rich uh, taste of the glory of Jesus Christ. And I want to read these first few verses to you. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. Listen to, to uh, how the writer says it. He says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners. I, I love the King James translation, as you know. And I love this translation, sundry times and divers manners. Here's what it means. God who at many times... And in many ways, various ways over many years, has spoken in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. He has, verse 2 says, in these last days, spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed to be the heir of all things, and by whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory, that is, Jesus is the brightness of the glory of God, the radiance of the glory of God, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I think you'll agree with me, there is a lot in those three verses. How rich those verses are to tell us about the person and the work of Jesus. Several things just to point out to you. One is that the writer of Hebrews wants to remind us that Jesus is the author of all creation. In other words, Jesus is the, is the creator himself. He is the maker of all things. John says it this way in John chapter 1, that um, that he was in the world and the world was made by him. John chapter 1, he says, all things were made by him. and Without him was not anything made that was made. 
This passage in Hebrews chapter 1, verse number uh, 3 tells us, or verse uh, 2 rather, tells us that God made the worlds by Jesus. Or through the work of Jesus, the worlds were created. Skip down to verse number 10. Verse 10, quoting from Psalm 102, speaks of Jesus and says, Thou, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Here's what the Bible tells us. Jesus is the author of creation. So when you worry about the planet, know this, Jesus made the planet. He is the creator of the planet. The second thing that the Hebrews writer tells us is that Jesus is the revelation of God within his creation. Look at how he tells us this in verse number three. Speaking of Jesus, he says, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. He tells us that Jesus made the world and then Jesus entered into the world. And that Jesus came into the world to reveal to us who God is. That God expressed himself, his perfect image, exactly what he's like, is expressed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the perfect expression of the glory of God. The third thing this passage tells us in verse 3, as well as down in verses 10, 11, and 12, is that Jesus is the superintendent of all creation. Listen to how he says it in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things. The word means sustaining all things things. Jesus is holding the world in place, in balance. He is hold, I don't mean that there's not such a thing as gravity. I simply mean that he is superintending over all natural laws which were created by God and he is working his plan. Do you remember singing maybe when you were a child that church song that said, he's got the whole world. Where do you have it? Y'all did that so good. You even sang it in his hands. This is what Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, that he has the world in his hands and he is sustaining it. In fact, look down in verse number 10. Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They shall perish. What will perish? The heavens and the earth. Uh, They shall perish, but you remain. They shall all wax old as a garment. uh, And as a vesture, you shall fold them up and they will shall be changed. He says that God is sustaining the creation and that God will work his plan in the creation. Man's not going to destroy this world. God is working his perfect plan. So Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus made the world, that he then entered into the world that he had made, redeeming us to God as he revealed to us what God is like, He then ascended from this earth back to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God and one day he will come again to accomplish his perfect work 
in this world. So do you need to worry and wonder and weep and opine when you watch the news? Yeah, you might be burdened and grieved and and even frustrated, maybe angered sometimes. But in every time that you watch it and those emotions rise up in you, just take a breath and step back and say, he's got the whole world in his hands. He is working his plan. So if Jesus made the world and Jesus entered into the world and Jesus sustains the world and Jesus has a plan for the world, then what exactly is that plan? Well, turn just a few pages where that you're holding your place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and let me show you exactly what that plan is. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 13, Paul writes, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, those that have died, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What is Jesus' plan? What is God's plan for the earth? Would you help me preach this morning, both campuses? Don't leave me hanging. Lean over to your neighbor and tell them, Jesus is coming again. Tell them that. Jesus, amen. Jesus is coming again. And let me say plainly, that is his plan. The plan of God for this earth is that Jesus will return. And he is coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. We're going to talk about this in our time together this morning. So I want you to jot down just that very thing in your notes somewhere. When we think about the predetermined divine plan for the earth, we should know that Jesus will come from heaven. Jesus will come from heaven one day. Notice, by the way, how 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 connects these two realities, our belief in the resurrection of Jesus with our belief in the return of Jesus. Did you see it as I read it? Look at verse number 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, in the same way, with the same confidence, we can be sure that Jesus will Come again. Here's the reality. If I know that Jesus came and lived and died and rose, if I know that to be true, then I have no problem believing that Jesus is coming again. My confidence in his future return is based upon my confidence in his historic work of redemption. Do you understand? Here's the way that I can say it to you. If Jesus has the power to rise then he surely has the power to reign. Amen? If he's dead, we'll never see him. But if he's alive, look to the heavens, because one day Jesus is coming 
again. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, and because he did, that changes everything. It changes everything personally. I don't have to fear death. It changes everything in our community. I don't have to worry about the world or the future because he has it. Jesus will come from heaven. Now, we just read where Paul said that he is coming from heaven uh, one day. But did you know that Jesus himself made the promise from his very own lips multiple times the Gospels record where Jesus said that he would come again? Look at John 14, a beloved passage. John 14, verse 3, Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Again, in Mark 14, verse 62, standing in front of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas says to him, are you the... Are you the son of God? And listen to Jesus' response. I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. I'm here to tell you, Jesus himself claimed that he would come again. If Jesus doesn't return, he's a liar. Because on more than one occasion, he promised to come back. But did you know that not only Jesus said that, the angels tell us that. The angels told us he's coming. Look at Acts 1 and verse 11. At the ascension of Jesus, in the moment that he went back to heaven, two angels said to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him taken up into heaven. They said, what are you doing standing around? In the same way that he went up through the clouds, he will return In the clouds, Jesus said he's coming back. The angels told us that Jesus would come back. Did you know that every New Testament author, not most, not some, every single author of any portion of the New Testament declared the second coming of Jesus Christ? Of the 27 books of the New Testament, Fully 20 of them mention the second coming of Jesus explicitly. But every single author within the New Testament in a portion of their writings referred to and declared the second coming of Christ. And Paul is no exception. And Paul's letters to the Thessalonians are no exception. Did you know that in First and Second Thessalonians there are eight chapters total and Every one of those chapters in these two letters mentions specifically the second coming of Jesus. I had planned on going through each of those and pointing them out to you today, but I think it's a better idea to give you some homework. That's your homework for today. Go read First and Second Thessalonians this afternoon and make yourself an assignment. I'm going to find every place where Paul mentions in each chapter the second coming of Christ. And then finally, in Revelation chapter number 22, the last book of the Bible, three different times in the very final chapter, as the biblical narrative, the revelation of God's word is closing, as the scroll is being rolled closed, the last words you read three times in red, the words of Jesus, behold, I come quickly, you roll a little, behold, I come quickly, you roll a little more, get ready. One day, suddenly, I'm going to be there. Jesus said he was coming back. The angel said he was coming back. Every New Testament author says he is coming back. And the last book of the Bible tells you three times 
By the way, three in the Bible is an important number. Holy, holy, holy. It means emphatically he's super holy. And three times he's coming back. He's coming. Emphatically, he says, I am coming back. I would submit to you that if Jesus does not return to the earth, you should rip your New Testament out of the Bible and throw it away because it's a collection of lies if Jesus isn't coming back. But here's the good news. Leave the New Testament in your Bible because one day Jesus Christ will return to earth. Amen? He is coming back. And this is God's plan. I've said it to you already in several ways, but write it down just as kind of the big idea of the day. We've been talking about the fact that because Jesus rose from the dead, then the earth There is a predetermined divine plan for the earth. Well, what is it? Here it is. Write it down. God's predetermined and divine plan for the earth is the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's his plan. Now, let's talk for a few minutes about what this second coming of Jesus will be like. Somewhere in your notes, jot this down because the Bible tells us this in 1 Thessalonians that that when Jesus returns, in that day, Jesus will take center stage in the earth. In that day, Jesus will take center stage. I want you to note in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we didn't read this verse, but go to chapter 5 and verse 2. Notice what it says. Paul writes, For you yourselves know perfectly or completely, you're fully aware of this, that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Suddenly, secretly, when you're not expecting, the day of the Lord will come. But I want you to focus not so much on how he will come as a thief in the night. Focus on this phrase. In fact, circle it. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It's an interesting and important phrase. It's a, it's a phrase that's found throughout your Bible 31 different times. And it's often coupled with extra descriptors. Let me give you some examples. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah speaks about the day of the Lord, but he calls it the day of the Lord's anger. In the book of Lamentations. The book of Isaiah, Isaiah calls it the day of the Lord of hosts. When the Bible speaks of the Lord of hosts, it's speaking about the Lord of of armies, the hosts of the armies of the Lord. Isaiah calls calls it the day of the Lord of the Lord's armies. The book of Joel calls it the great and terrible, great and awesome day of the Lord. Zephaniah calls it the day of the Lord's sacrifice. Malachi, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Philippians, Paul refers to this time, this day, as the day of Jesus Christ. John calls it the day of judgment. In Romans, it's called the day of wrath. And Paul refers to to it with Timothy as simply that day, that day that everyone should know about and be aware of. Now, what is this Day. When you think about the day of the Lord, it is not a single day, but rather it is a a period of time, a season of time in history. Someone has said that the day of the Lord is the point in time when God will intervene to reveal his sovereign control of history, of time, of 
his people and of all people. And the Bible repeatedly speaks of this time, this day of the Lord, with all of these different descriptors. But no matter what descriptor you give it, the day of the Lord will be that season when Jesus will step to center stage. It is his day. You know, it used to be in America that Sunday was the Lord's day. Are you old enough to remember when Sunday was the Lord's day? It still is the Lord's day. But in America, in the culture, even among people who were not Christians, people who didn't go to church, people reverenced Sunday as the Lord's day. And so people would rest and they would play and be together as family, but they rarely would work or they rarely would would go out and play sports or be involved in some sort of activity. It was just a day where we said, we're going to focus on the Lord. It was the Lord's day. Well, the Bible says that when the day of the Lord comes, it will be a season in which all the world will understand. It's like Sunday. It is the Lord's day. It's not Mother's day. It's not Father's day. It's not Arbor day. It's not Earth Day. It's the day of the Lord. And Jesus will move to center stage. Today, in our day, Jesus is loved by many. We love Jesus. And Jesus is proclaimed around the world by his church. That's true. And the name of Jesus is widely known throughout the the earth, to be sure. But in our day... Not everybody knows about Jesus. Not everybody knows who Jesus is. And even among those who do know who Jesus is, many of them have great doubts about his identity, great doubts about the claims we make about Christ, and many of them reject him. Billions of people around the world reject Christ completely. But I want you to know that when the day of the Lord comes, comes. He will be seen by every person in the world and he will ultimately be worshiped by every person in the world. Listen to how the Bible tells us this in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him will see him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be Amen. This morning is a sense of conviction at his holiness and his power. And so the Bible says that when Jesus comes in the day of the Lord, every eye will see him. There won't be anybody who will say, I don't know who Jesus is. It's the Lord's day. He's center stage. And everyone will know his power. All nations, all tribes will mourn because of him. So when you think about the day of the Lord, I want you to think about it in these terms. This is not a single day, but it is a season in which Jesus will step to center stage in the earth. It will be a series of events, a series of happenings in which Jesus will step to center stage. Now at Brookstone, we believe that the Bible teaches that there will be a series of what I call seven prophetic events that will walk us through the day of the Lord. And I want to walk through these seven with you. And I'm going to say almost nothing about each one of them because we don't have time. 
I'm happy to have a, a broader discussion about them at some point. Maybe a, we'll do a Wednesday night lift Bible study class on this topic in the, in the near future. But I want to give you a list of seven uh, prophetic events that the Bible describes uh, that will walk us through the day of the Lord. Now, what I'm going to describe to you theologically is known as dispensational premillennialism. And you go, ooh, I don't care about that phrase. Dispensational premillennialism. If you want to read more about it, go Google it this afternoon. Look for some good sources. Dispensational premillennialism. This would be our position of future events and the future of the earth. Now, I need to say that not every believer believes everything is going to unfold like I'm getting ready to tell you. Certainly, godly people disagree on how each of these things or, or all of these events will unfold. What I'm telling you is, uh, is my conviction from Scripture and our church position, what comes from this pulpit. All right? And so these are the seven events, rapid fire. Number one, the rapture of the church. That will be the first event leading into the day of the Lord. Uh, in fact, the Bible tells us about the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We read it a moment ago. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we, the church, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. There's that word harpazo. It means to be called away. It's the rapture of the church. We are called up uh, to be with the Lord. Revelation 4 pictures this as well, the rapture of the church. Number two, second event, the tribulation period. The tribulation period. A period of seven years of trouble. What the Bible calls the time of Jacob's trouble or the time of Israel's trouble or the time of Daniel's 70th week. This is described in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, as well as Revelation chapters 6 through 18, the tribulation period. Number three, the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Now this would simply be the return of Jesus to the earth. In the rapture, Jesus comes to the clouds, catches his church away, and then at the end of the tribulation, Jesus comes in his revelation, his second coming where he returns to the earth. Number four, the judgment of the nations. The judgment of the nations. By the way, the return, the revelation of Jesus, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 and Revelation chapter number 19. The judgment of the nations, Matthew 25, where the Bible says that when the king shall come and sit upon the throne of his glory, he will divide the people like sheep and goats. And he will say to the, to the sheep, enter into my kingdom, and he will say unto the goats, depart into everlasting Darkness, the judgment of the nations. Number five, the millennial reign of Christ. 1,000 years described in Revelation 20 where Christ will reign upon the earth and we, the church, will rule and reign with him. Number six, the great white throne judgment. This is the final judgment, the judgment of all the living and all the dead and all of human history will be raised and stand before God for a final judgment. Then number seven, the new heaven and the new earth where there will be a new creation, a new heaven, new earth, and we will live forever and eternity with the Lord. And so this is, this describes, at least certainly through uh, number six, and we're into eternity in number seven, uh, but this describes the day of the Lord. If y'all doing okay, would you shout amen? Does that make sense? Amen. All right, so what's the divine predetermined future for this earth? 
Jesus is coming, and we believe these seven prophetic events will outline the way in which he will come and the things that will happen. Now, let me close our time together. We only have a few minutes left. But let me close our time together by giving you some handles of application. So Jesus is coming. I get it. Amen. Can't wait. Jesus is coming. What does that mean for me now? Number one, I would just simply suggest that every Christian finds comfort in this thought. Every Christian takes comfort in the fact that Jesus is coming again. Why do we take comfort in that? Notice what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse number 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What words? The words that Jesus is coming and the dead in Christ will rise and we will be called up and together we will be with the Lord forever. Be encouraged by that. Be comforted by that. He says the exact same thing, that we ought to comfort one another uh, in uh, chapter 5, that we will find comfort. Chapter 5, verse number 11, that we would comfort yourselves, uh, comfort ourselves together. The believer finds great comfort in the resurrection of Jesus and in the return of Jesus. Why? Because when I watch the news and I see the chaos in the world that's hopeless, And I see the faltering, flailing, what seems to many of us often foolish policies of man that seem to simply make matters worse. I step back and I say, Lord Jesus, I'm so glad you're coming again. Because I can be comforted that I'm not trusting in men or policies or or, uh, political parties. Jesus is coming. But we also take comfort in it because every one of us have buried our loved ones. In our first service this morning here in Weaverville, there was a, one of the precious ladies in our church whose husband passed away about 10 days ago. And, and uh, I was able to give her a hug and, and, just, and talk about the fact that we, we find comfort that death is not the end. The dead in Christ will rise. They are with the Lord now. And their bodies will rise and we will be with them. And so when we're lonely and we're afraid and we're sad and we're heartbroken, we simply relax and we find comfort in this fact Jesus is coming and that comforts my heart. The second thing, though, that it does is that every Christian should be challenged by this thought. Did you know that the word comfort doesn't just mean consolation? It also means encouragement or spurring on. And so here's the thing. I'm comforted that Jesus is coming. I'm consoled by that. But I'm also challenged that Jesus is coming because I know he's coming and I want to be found faithful when he arrives. And when you read 2 Thessalonians, it talks a lot about, the, I'm not 2 Thessalonians, but 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about how that, how that we ought to build one another up, encourage one another. Hebrews says, especially as we see the day of the Lord appearing, or the day of the Lord coming, Because Jesus is coming. Serve him. Be sanctified by the Spirit. Walk in holiness. Jesus is coming. Listen, do you know why you want to be holy tomorrow and not go living like the world tomorrow? There are a lot of reasons, but not the least among them is this. Jesus might show up. And you don't want to be there doing that, acting that way, when Jesus shows up. You know why I want to press on? I don't want to quit and sit on the sidelines of my Christian faith and just say, I'm done, I'm going to to rest until I die. I don't want to do that because when he comes, I want to be found faithful. Acts chapter 7 tells us about Stephen who was faithful to the end of his life and in the moment that Stephen died being faithful, the Bible says that Jesus stood up, stood up and welcomed him in heaven. And I tell you, when I see Jesus, I don't want him going. 
I want him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Every Christian is comforted. Every Christian is challenged. Finally, every sinner should tremble at this thought. Every, Christ, every sinner should tremble at the thought that Jesus could come and I would not be ready. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 gives us a sober warning about not being ready for the return of Jesus. And you may say, well, pastor, you know what? All that rapture stuff and tribulation stuff and all that stuff that Revelation talks about happening one day, I don't think I believe all that. But I'll tell you what, if it happens, I'll get saved then. (laughs) Pastor, if you and a bunch of Christians around here disappear, if I come to church next Sunday and it's only me and a few others, because all y'all went to heaven in the rapture, I'll get saved then, I'll guarantee you. I would suggest that you won't. Because 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2 warns you that in that day there will be such deception in the world, there will be such deceivableness in the world that you will believe a lie. And that God will even cease revealing himself in some ways so that you would not trust in him. Today is the day of salvation. This is the time. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, he's coming. Be ready when he comes.